Hey, this is Charles Hain for the Week in Film Tech, July 4th, 2019. It is video-less this week. It is audio-only because I'm spending the next two weeks teaching at the main media workshops in Rockport, Maine. So it is just going to be audio this week and next week, although we'll still put it up on YouTube. I've never actually been to the main media workshops before. This is my first time ever attending here. And uh, I didn't know there's three meals a day here. Like I was, I'm drinking coffee right now that was coffee. That was like waiting here. I mean, it's like a very summer campy atmosphere. It's kind of great. Anyway, I'll be here the next two weeks, so I will be slower to respond to Twitter comments because I will be teaching full-time 40 hours a week. Very excited to be here. So this week in the Week in Film Tech, Dish.tc gets time code from satellites. KitSplit ups their voluntary parting coverage, or it's coming. They've announced it. Massive gets a desktop app. Johnny Ive leaves Apple. And then there's a hey professor with a very annoying answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. It's one of the pleasures of being a teacher when you get to tell the student, actually, the thing you want to do, I don't recommend you do. All that this week on The Week in Film Tech with Charles Hayne. First thing this week, there's a Kickstarter going on. It's got another week left. I'm wary of Kickstarters. Like, for instance, and I'm go ahead and call Digital Sputnik out on this. I supported this Digital Sputnik Voyager Kickstarter in July of 2017, and I just got my two-foot Voyager in the mail. Sometimes Kickstarters are slow. Digital Sputnik. Um, although, look out for a review of the Digital Sputnik Voyager Not once I play with it for a couple of weeks. But there's a really interesting one that it's, – it's a weird one, but I think it's kind of cool. So, obviously, the best way to sync audio and video is time code, right? The clapper slate is what we did for 100 years. You've got a clapper out there. It claps. Audio and video both get the clap. You bring it together in post, but it takes work. Waveform sync is popular with the indies, right? You have an audio recorder and a microphone on camera, and then uh, the computer brings the waveform together. There's two big problems with waveform. It's very slow, right? You bring the audio files and the video files together, and you click uh, sync, and then it has to go through the whole video and audio syncing process. Also, it's not super accurate. For instance, let's say I'm on a long lens. I'm on a 150-millimeter lens. I'm on the other side of a park. And my actors, you know, I'm shooting a scene from the conversation or something, and I'm up in a tower, and they're down in the park. And my recorder's down in the park with them. And the microphone is up in the tower. And it's still getting audio because I've turned its gain up all the way somehow. That audio will not actually be in sync with the picture because sound and image don't move at the same speed. The speed of light is much faster than the speed of sound. So ideally, you want a recorder that can be out there with your performers where you don't have to worry about the speed of light. And uh, ideally, you don't want to have to use a clap slate. So what pros use is they use time code sync. You run timecode into your camera and timecode into your audio recorder, and then literally Premiere, Media Composer, uh, Resolve. You highlight the files, you right-click, sync with audio timecode, and like, bam, automatically your files are in sync and everybody loves it. Timecode sync is the way to go. It's what we do. However, timecode sync is a little annoying because it's a little like you got to, you know, you have to have an audio recorder that can generate timecode sync out, and then you have to jam it into the camera, and then the camera drifts, and you have to rejam, and you have to remember to do it. And on timecode sync jamming productions, you're, you're syncing first thing in the morning and at lunch. And sometimes on certain brands of camera that will remain nameless, you're syncing twice in the morning and twice after lunch, and it's annoying. Dish.tc is a company that was like, wait a minute, guys. There is super accurate atomic clock time being beamed down at all of us all the time from satellites. GPS satellites circle the globe all the time, and in order for GPS to work, in order for your phone to put that little dot on the map that shows you where you are, it needs hyper-accurate time coming from satellites. Why don't we just use that time for time code, and then you'd never have to jam? That's 
a great idea. So Dish GC is doing these like I think they're 250 each. They might be 200 each. I don't remember the price, but it literally takes the time code from the satellite and puts it in your camera. This is great. Now, it's so great. I don't know about the long-term future of the company because it's so great in five years. It seems like every camera will just do this. You know, like usually when you're uh, setting the time code settings on a fancy camera, it's like time code internal clock, time code free run, time code time of day, time code jam, whatever. I can imagine in the future one of them will be like time code GPS because why not? Um, and then it writes uh, the atomic clock time on each frame. Hopefully, Dish.tc has done something special or fancy enough with their design that it'll make more sense for Panasonic or Sony to buy them to integrate the tech rather than to just imitate them and integrate the tech. Um, separate from that, no, no camera or audio recorders doing this right now. Ooh, maybe sound devices will buy them and put it in the audio side. Anyway, nobody's doing it now, so the smart solution for right now is to consider buying these. So they actually they were nice enough to send us a couple. We tested them. Right now, they use a format. And it's not their fault that this format's weird. Uh, They use a format called Audio LTC, Linear Time Code. And if you don't know what Audio LTC is, it puts time code in through the audio input and records it to the audio track of your file. This is like a really smart move for them because like every camera has an audio input. We tested on the Fuji X-H1, any of your DSLRs, any camera, you're going to be able to put that in. And there's always an audio input on like your audio recorder, obviously. So... You can record that same audio track to both. Now, that's really brilliant for Dish TC. And they're building a software that'll be able to take those video and audio files and pull the audio LTC and make it normal time code. That's great. It's actually available now on GitHub, but it's like a beta or a developer's version. This is great. However, where it stands right now is that you need basically Media Composer is the and No surprise there. Media Composer, Avid Media Composer is often very good at all of the pro workflows. That's like part of their shtick. We're good at stuff. Does audio LTC really, really well. Um, Premiere doesn't do it at all. Blackmagic does it for video. (laughs) So you can get the time code out of video like a snap. Uh, Wave files, like what you recorded with the Zoom H6 or whatever, you have to add it to a video file, render it out, bring it back in, and then you can get the audio time code out of it, which is insane. The audio time code's right there on the wave file. Hopefully Resolve will fix that in a coming update because as if audio time code takes off or if Resolve buys Dish TC and puts the time code in the Blackmagic cameras, Blackmagic by Dish TC, and then make the workflow like fully integrated in Resolve. So it is not seamless in post. You want to test it for post if you're if – you're, this is not the kind of thing where you're going to buy it and it's going to come the day before you shoot and you're just going to strap it to cameras and go. You want to test your post-workflow. Although, frankly, you always want to test your post-workflow. But once you have your post-workflow dialed in, the perk of this is you could have four cameras and two audio recorders and you're confident that all you're going to have to do is bring them in and post. And once the, the time code is figured out, once you have that step figured out, either using Dishes software or other software or Media Composer, one-click, time code sync, all your audio and picture syncs together. It's super cool. I will say this, and they warn you about this on the website. There are places you can't get a good GPS signal. In fact, I tested it in an old Navy building. It was the Navy Radio Communications building as these giant 200-foot towers on top. I don't know if that's what's blocking the satellite signal, but I had to walk outside to get signal. But it has a little indicator that tells you if it's getting signal, and there's a little LED that tells you how the signal's doing, and there's a little scratch mic so that it's also recording scratch audio as well as time code. So... I think it's a pretty slick solution. I think if, you know, I'm always reluctant about 
Kickstarters. But I used physical beta versions of these units, and they seemed pretty robust. And uh, hopefully it won't be two years to get them out in the field. So if this seems like the kind of solution you're desperately in need of, check out the Kickstarter and see if it's maybe going to be useful for you. All right, up next, KitSplit have announced that they are going to be covering voluntary parting in an upcoming solution. Now, a little bit of backstory on all of this. KitSplit and its main competitor, ShareGrid, I have an interview coming up with the founders of ShareGrid that will come out in the next week or two. They talk about voluntary parting in there, and I'll give you a little context from that interview. But they are online platforms like Airbnb for cameras. They're peer-to-peer rental solutions. Very exciting. I have a camera. I want to rent it out to someone. You could previously do that on Craigslist back in the DVX 100 days, but there's no trust. Whereas with KitSplit and ShareGrid, there's insurance for damage. There's uh, uh, they've built a profile. You can see if they've done rentals in the past. You can see who they're connected to. You can see if they're renting their stuff out. So the platform helps. It's one of those great use cases where like Airbnb is like this too. This was activity that existed on Craigslist, but by offering benefits, by offering more trust and more information and more ease of use and payment systems and insurance, you move this activity that exists on Craigslist off Craigslist to another platform. Super cool. However, the one form of insurance KitSplit didn't cover you for is something called voluntary parting. So I rent my camera to someone and they're out shooting and a thief comes to set with like a pistol and steals the camera or just wanders by and steals the camera, you are covered. However, if I rent the camera to someone and they disappear... That is actually to an insurance company, not theft. That is fraud. And insurance companies traditionally don't cover you for that unless they, unless you have voluntary parting coverage. Now, ShareGrid, the West Coast competitor to KitSplit, went out and they worked with their insurance company, Athos, to uh, build a voluntary parting coverage option. It's an extra option that you get out of ShareGrid uh, if you use Athos to get your insurance. And it's not a rental-by-rental rental option. It is a... I'm buying yearly insurance. And if you own gear, you should have yearly insurance as well. Like the insurance you get when you rent it out covers you for that, but you should also have your own insurance that covers, like let's say you drop the camera while you're taking it to the rental. The rental insurance isn't going to cover that. You want your own insurance. Or when you use it on your own productions, all of that kind of stuff, you should have your own insurance. Athos is offering uh, an additional voluntary parting annual coverage that will cover you for that fraud. Now, it's still going to be a hassle and there's going to be a deductible and you need to do all your homework there. You need to – both KitSplit and ShareGrid do a lot of fraud detection, trying to analyze fraudulent transactions, trying to analyze profiles. Both of them claim, you know, like fractions of a percent of fraudulent cases. But you could get that coverage on an annual basis out of ShareGrid. However, KitSplit just had a huge drama where someone rented out an A7 III and it got stolen, but it was fraud. The renter just took it. And because of that – KitSplit initially didn't cover the uh, loss, $3,500 loss, A7 III, brand new, very hot camera. I guess it's been out a year, but it's like a hot Sony camera. They were very friendly about it, but they didn't cover it. And then the user wrote a Medium post that went viral and was all over the, like, photo and video internets last week. And KitSplit looked into it and, first off, apologized for how they handled it, covered it, which is very generous of them, and have announced that they are going to be offering, in the future, a waiver program for gear up to $20,000 to cover voluntary parting situations. It'll be opt-in. It's not going to cover automatically every uh, rental. You're going to have to pay for it. It'll be a waiver you pay for. However, and hopefully they they hope to increase it beyond $20,000 in the future. But honestly, if I'm using KitSplit, 
I'm going to opt into this. Now, you might want to look at the Athos year-round voluntary parting coverage. If you are renting something all the time, it might be cheaper to do that. If you're renting twice a year, it might be cheaper to do kit split and the waiver. Your situation is going to depend upon what your goals are for your rental gear and how much you expend it to rent out and that kind of thing. I have items up on kit split that I've rented twice. And so in that case, it wouldn't make sense for me to do yearly voluntary parting. I would just do an optional waiver at both of those times. I will also say this. I always, I view both KidSplit and ShareGrid as social networks. Everything I rent out, I chat with the person. I show them how it works. I talk to them for a while. Um, I've traditionally done this kind of like because I'm a nerd and it's fun, but and also because I rent weird stuff. And so usually when people are renting it, they have questions and we can talk for a while and stuff like that. But it's also like a great way of like building your extended network of people who know how to use your tools. What's interesting about this is, in the future, I will also be using that conversation to evaluate whether or not I'm going to let them rent. And I might say no. Honestly, if I get the feeling they might not bring it back or if they're not asking a lot of like deep nerd questions about it, uh, I might I might let that go. But for now, that is sort of the situation on KitSplit and ShareGrid. This coverage from KitSplit is not out yet. It's been announced. It will be coming out in the future. Always be careful when you do these rental platforms. But again, both KitSplit and ShareGrid – work really hard on fraud. Less than 1%, a fraction of 1% of rentals have any fraud issues. And uh, it is a great way to build an extended community. All righty. Next up, Massive. So I just wanted to bring this up because Massive is my favorite online transfer tool. Massive is a pay-as-you-go tool. So Dropbox, you pay a certain monthly fee and you get two terabytes or two gigabytes or whatever it is. Um, but Dropbox is actually kind of slow for video files. As they said on Silicon Valley, when it comes to video, Dropbox might as well be Dripbox. Massive at masv.io is a tool designed specifically for sharing large media files. It pays you go, which I love because I can then bill it onto client, right? Okay, I need to share 150 gigs with you. It's going to be $27 or whatever. I can add that to the invoice. Hooray. It's also in my tests five times faster. They only brag about three times faster than Dropbox, but when I tested it a couple months ago, I was getting five times faster than Dropbox speeds. Neither of them were fully maxing out my internet bandwidth. Like it's the servers, not the internet that is slowing it down. It's not your your local Wi-Fi slowing it down. It's the speed of their servers. But their servers are optimized by media, designed for this. So if you have to share a big pile of dailies with someone, if you're sharing an entire edit with someone, if you're working remotely with someone, Massive is something you should consider. The fun thing about Massive is they're totally obviously in like startup growth mode. And so they keep coming out with new features. They just released a desktop app, which they're claiming is going to be even faster because it's not working through your browser's IP protocol and it can open different ports and it'll work well with uh, firewalls and all that stuff. And they also launched Slack integration. So you're delivering something and now you're going to get a Slack notification when the delivery is done or when someone downloads. So that is all super cool new stuff and massive is worth a look. Okay, the final news, the big, big drama news It's not really a tech thing, and I'm not going to talk about it much, but I want to talk about it a little bit, and that is Johnny Ive leaving Apple. Johnny Ive is leaving Apple to partner with his buddy Mark Newsom and to start love from their own design firm. Look, there's a lot on the internet about this. All I want to add is, uh, first off, I'm going to say the last two years have felt like a renaissance for Apple and filmmakers. Uh, The new Mac Pro, the, the 2018 MacBook Pro. Frankly, even the Mac Mini, which does really well on certain transcoding tasks, especially H.265, although it has thermal issues, so don't, like, stack things on top of it. Like, it's going to get hot. And apparently, for the last two years, Johnny Ive has been pulling away. He's been preparing this. I don't think those are related in any way. I think Johnny Ive cared about professional customers. What's interesting about this for filmmakers is, apparently, Johnny Ive's first client is Apple, for love from. And I want to remind people that it is possible to leave a company... And continue to have a good working relationship with them. 
Uh, I helped start a company called Cinelicious, and then Cinelicious ended up being someone that I sent work to when I had jobs I couldn't do or when they had equipment that I needed or something. There's this idea that, like, you leave and you have burned all bridges. But actually, what one thing that happens professionally quite a lot is you leave a company and you continue a professional working relationship. This There's many theories on the Internet about what this could be. But this could just be Johnny Ive wanting to have more than one client. He's a very talented designer. I believe in the last decade or so he's done a couple, like, one-off jobs for other people. But, you know, Apple is a very demanding client. And with love from, he's going to be able to have a portfolio of clients he pays attention to. And Apple's going to be one of them. And so this doesn't necessarily need to be a narrative of, like, a terrible, bad divorce. Like, sometimes you leave a company because you are ready to be freelance and work with a variety of clients. I mean, when I owned a post house, we had a editor on salary. And he was great. And then he was like, I want to go freelance. And he went freelance, and he still did like half of his work with us, but he did half his work with other people. It is a normal part of business. And I think that um, in certain areas of business it's not, but in this one it definitely is. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, all right. Here is my hey professor with an annoying answer. Famira Films, who I've answered questions from before, said, I'm looking for an adapter to use Joker mods on a Bowens mount light. I want to use a Joker I want to use a gem ball, which is made for Joker bugs, and I want to put it on an Aperture 120D. Can I do that? Here's my answer, Famira. Sure, I guarantee you if you dig deep enough into B&H or Adorama or Amazon, you can find some speed ring to Bowens, something, adapter, that'll be like $184. And I would just recommend against it. The simple reason I'd recommend against it is because Aperture is coming out with their own ball light adapter. It was announced at NAB. It's not shipping yet. I'm sure it'll be shipping this fall. As soon as it's shipping, there'll be articles about it. It looked like it was going to be shipping in May. I think I even wrote an article about it, and then Aperture said, actually, no, that's wrong. It's not shipping yet. Um, that might have just happened. So it is out there. It's coming. They are working on it. And it will work natively with your Aperture 120D, which is nice. But it's also one of those things of the reason why I want to say don't do it is because I've gone down that rabbit hole so many – look, part of filmmaking is a willingness to go down that rabbit hole of being like, oh, you know, I want to rig this thing to my car. If I drill it to my frame, can I do this thing or whatever? Or like, oh, I have these, uh, you know, these weird lenses and these adapters. Can I make it work? Part of filmmaking. However, when there is a tool specifically designed to do what you want to do, it's often better to just wait for it and use the one that's designed for. Like, that aperture ball is probably going to cost as much as the adapter ring for a gem ball to a, what is it, Bowen's mount on the aperture 120. Because adapter rings and anything that's really low volume, anything they're going to sell 50 of or 20 of, you have to charge more for because you're only selling 50 of it. Whereas Aperture is going to sell 10,000 of those gym balls so they can charge less for them because they can make it up on volume what they lose out on margin. For me, and I say this as someone who like used to have these weird Russian lenses that had like these weird uh, adapters. And I was so confident I could find screws for these adapters. But it turns out they weren't even metric. They were British Whitworth. And I had to go to like specialty stores and like metric specialties. And they didn't have – I mean it was a whole – no, it was British aerospace screws which is like a very old format from the 40s and 50s. You could go down this rabbit hole, or you could wait a little bit and get the thing that is pre-made for you. And I think in this case, you might want to just wait a little bit and get the pre-made for you. If someone knows of like a $30 adapter that is out there, hit us up on Twitter. Premier Films has tweeted at me. You You can respond to us both. I don't know of it. I think you could probably dig for it forever. But my answer would be to wait for the the solution that is pre-designed because sometimes that is just easier. Now, if there's legitimately no thing coming, 
you figure out how to make the adapter. But sometimes those rabbit holes are not worth the time and the money. Um, I've definitely blinked and been like, oh, my God, I just spent $300 trying to make these two things work together and failed. Or, and succeeded, but only used it once. So, like, sometimes those rabbit holes, sometimes we just want to untie the knot so badly and it's better to learn the lesson to let it go. All right, everybody. This week and next week, no video. This has been Charles Hain for The Week in Film Tech. Uh, be sure to subscribe. If you're a film nerd, tell all your friends to subscribe who are also film nerds. I will always answer questions for Hey Professor. Hit me up at Charles Hain. Uh, we're on all of the platforms. You can also sign up for our email list at weekinfilmtech.com. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.